Darian, it is such a pleasure to have you on. Uh, I'm always excited to talk to entrepreneurs because uh, the energy, the optimism, the passion, the drive, it's always there. Would you mind giving listeners a brief introduction of yourself? Uh, sure. I can say uh, my name is Darian Kovacs, uh, proud Métis, living uh, currently in Fort Langley with my four children and wife. Um, my children are four, uh, seven, eight, and 16. I uh, I love to swim uh, when I can and do watercoloring. Uh, I'm not very good at either of those things, but I really enjoy them. What's what, watercoloring? So I'll like um, I'll use pen and ink to draw things like uh, scenes I see or things I observe, and then I uh, do watercoloring on top, like with a with a paintbrush and watercolors. I got to be honest, when you said it and you said swimming, I was like, do you color in the water? I should know. <laughs> I should try that. That'd be an amazing. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna try that. Chat. I'll take you up on that. I'm gonna try that this summer. Um, and I recently, this last summer, took up growing dahlias, which is a uh, uh, one of my favorite flowers. Wow, beautiful. When did you become interested in entrepreneurship? When did you decide that you needed to pave your own path, um, go in your own direction, and and bring your own uh, vision to life? You know, it's a good question. I've I've had the chance of having a 60 year old. He started a car detailing business this last summer. And I watched him do it and start it and made a little, you know, registered on Google My Business, set up a little like, you know, Google Maps thing, location, and started getting these jobs detailing cars. And I remember him doing the math that for us because his friends were working hourly for X dollars an hour. And he came and he goes, Dad, I'm making like Y an hour right now. And I control when I work. I don't have to wear a uniform. I literally got to get it, walk inside the house for lunch because he was, people would bring the cars to our house. And I remember, and I remember watching in his eyes the, this something flip, and him be like, "Why would I ever work somewhere else when I can do this?" And, and it was so like fascinating and amazing as you know, both the dad and as an entrepreneur to watch that like the bug, right? If you want to call it that, or you know, like the travel bug or the entrepreneurial spirit, or the even the entrepreneurial understanding that like you can make it on your own, like you can be your own boss, you can do it. Um, so now, you know, it's using grade 11 is the wrestle of like, hey, what what else do I want to do with this? And, you know, what would I do if I went to university or college? And, and how does that apply? Um, so for myself, my dad actually came over as a to Canada as a refugee from Hungary in 1956, like many Hungarians uh, at that time um, who lived here now in Canada. And my dad, my whole life, I watched him being an entrepreneur and I watched him, you know, starting businesses and running businesses and I watched the kind of the ups and the downs. And I remember thinking to myself, like, you know, some days he would just work these long hours and working, you know, and sometimes in his office that I remember thinking, I would never want to do that. I, would, I want like a nine to five. I want to go home and not have to think about it. But I also remember seeing like how much he loved what he did. And then I think, I don't know when the bug hit. I think I've always been an interesting mix where I did go to university and I was involved in a lot of kind of like volunteer stuff and involved in a lot of like like organizations and things. And, and I tried a few things on my own, but I think I always would balance it with like a salary somewhere or a, you know, a contract somewhere. So I think it wasn't until I fully went all in with Jelly about 10 years ago where I actually, not even then, actually, I still had a thing on the side. But like, I'd say like, yeah, I, I just recently am a more of like, I went all in banked 100% of myself versus like 
balancing it with like a steady paycheck here and then entrepreneurial stuff here. Not such a bad thing to do, right? Because as you're introducing yourself to that world, the the hesitation for so many people is that risk, that there is no guarantees, there is no, like if you fail, if you have a bad relationship with a client, if something goes wrong, if a meteor hits your house and destroys your, your working space, you're it's ground zero, you, you, do, you have to start over. And then going and finding that job can be a challenge because they go, oh, like, who, who did you work for? Give me some references. Even getting a place as an entrepreneur and they're like, give us your references for this. And you're like, I don't have any, like I've been on my own. It's just, it makes the world a little bit more challenging if things go wrong. Yeah, and I feel even now, like the way we structured our agency, Jelly Marketing, most of our client work is retainer based. And so we pay, you know, we have kind of a flat rate each month where we do these services. And so I know what my income for the agency is like, at least for the next year. I, I know what to count on and can rely on. Whereas sometimes I, I connect with and chat with like friends that are in the website business and they it's so up and down, up and down or, or in the branding business, right? So they'll get this really big branding project, but then they'll have no new work for maybe a couple months. So they're still living off of the work that was there and then something big will come. Whereas I think I, maybe it's that what I grew up with watching my dad or, or you know, my mom was always instilling me to find a good steady job somewhere and get a good education and that balance of, you know, running a, an agency, but basing it based on kind of that consistent retainer business. How did you approach your education? Because some people, more so now, people just go to school and they just, what am I going to major in? Like it isn't, which is good on the one hand, like at least you're educating yourself, but sure. it feels like there's maybe less of a understanding of the why as to like, not like I'm going to go get X job at the end of it, but like, how is this going to enrich me for the rest of my life? What tools am I trying to develop? So I'm a stronger, more thoughtful, competent person in the future. How did you approach that decision? Yeah. You know, I, I actually don't even think it was really, it was a decision. It was just, you just do it. Like this is in 1999. It was just, you didn't, I felt like I didn't really have a choice. It was just more of, well, what university will I go to? And so it was, you know, I ended up at UVic. My brother was there. Uh, I studied visual arts. I went there to study painting. Uh, but again, as we know, I, I'm not very good at that, but I love doing it. So I ended up shifting into child and youth care. But I'd say, and you know what? I never ended up finishing uh, my degree there. I never completed. Um, so I still have like an internship and a few more credits to get um, to get my bachelor's. But while I was there, like the connections I made, the clubs I joined, the clubs I started, um, the the experiences I had were life changing. Like even my own side, I'm like, I'm a huge advocate for like micro credentialing and like, you know, these new forms of education and these new systems. But part of me is like, man, I still want my son to experience university for the, the social purposes. I was saying, we were driving last week, actually, and I was saying to him, I was like, you know what would be cool is if like, um, you know, whatever, BCIT or that, they had a room full of like gamer chairs, like really nice chairs. You know, if you're not a gamer, they're just really comfy and cozy and you can lean back a bit. And they had these screens where you could take like your online courses, like take those micro credentials from like Microsoft, you know, Google, Meta, like all the places. And then, but yeah, you're still taking some courses in person, but maybe you're able to gather with people who are taking similar micro credentials to you and, and you can process it afterwards and discuss them and dialogue and kind of like that hybrid environment. Like it would be the coolest thing if universities became gathering places of education, but they were more agnostic and more Switzerland than they were like, no, you need to take our courses and our credits here. 
I agree with you. It feels like we're in a transition period with educational institutions where there is a bit of a disconnect between them and average people because so many people go, well, I want to know about how to make my art better, but I don't want to do four years of education on art history in order to, to start my art project. And it's like, there's a benefit, like some of the courses you don't get excited about statistics being like the common one for people. They don't want to do that course and it gives you tools. So the forcing people to do things is a good thing, but if it's not interfacing with the reality of the world, this is the complaint with high school where people are like, I'm, I'm learning this algebraic formula that I'm never going to use in my life. And if that's how you feel about school in general, we've probably gone too far in the wrong direction. Yeah, no. I, I'm so curious. There's an organization in Ontario called eCampus Ontario, uh, run by a guy named Dr. Robert Luke, and he has figured out a way. It's really cool to look at kind of credentials and credits from both public universities and colleges and private universities and colleges, and soon to be um, corporate uh, training micro credentials as well, and figure out a way to Lego brick them up. So he's figured out a system where through eCampus Ontario, you could do like a bit of courses there, a few courses here, a little something. So think of it like a collecting a passport, you know, stamps or uh, brownies or scouts or whatever, all the badges. And at the end of your four or five years or whatever, maybe three years, you graduate or you don't even really graduate, but you leave the education experience with like a a whole bunch of experiences and these little badges to prove that you know that stuff. Yeah. I think that that's uh, definitely something we're going to see more and more of. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. How did you get started with jelly marketing? How did you start to think, were you thinking about this beforehand? Were you looking at the world through a certain lens that kind of led to this path? How did you get started? Yeah, so I worked in various sectors. Uh, mostly youth work was where I, I discovered the the importance and the vital need for good marketing. Um, also, even just while I was in high school volunteering, uh, I s- fell in love with the power of PR. You know, I actually, I, funny thing, I had um, this opportunity to volunteer for this conference that ICBC put on every year while I was in high school. So this is like mid-90s, run by these twins, Almira um, and Jobina Barai. And uh, they show me like what PR can do when you got press for an event and press for a thing. And I was like, this is powerful and fascinating when you know how to use it well, right? It was kind of like, you remember Spider-Man, it was like Uncle Ben would say, you know, those with great power have great responsibility, right? And so I watched them using it for good. And sure enough, you know, years later, even now, Almira started a PR agency and we were able to connect as like peers. And it was so fun to be like, man, you, you put me onto this. It's so neat. Um, but I worked in youth work and I watched our kids in the youth group who were on this thing called Nexopia at the time. And then they got onto MySpace. Wow. Uh, I remember that. That's crazy. Yeah. And, and I was still studying, um, at UVic when Facebook launched in Canada for only university students. So I had a Facebook account cause I had a at UVic address. And I remember thinking like, this is going to change things. Um, I then worked for an organization where, um, I got to start building apps. So in the iOS store, which is like the iPhone and, and just seeing what apps were able to do. And then I realized, you know, this is important and it's vital. And there's a ton of organizations that just really need to know how to use it well. So then we launched Jelly actually 10 years ago in a, it'll be 10, will be 10 years in a month um, to help organizations know how to navigate the world of PR. So like traditional PR and then at the time, uh, mom bloggers, which are the OGs of influencers. So we were, to, so we were like the first um, influencer agency, essentially, in Canada. And then we worked, uh, Google Ads had just gotten going. So we were running Google Ads uh, and then managing people's social media channels. 
for them. So those are the three things we did for people and essentially also helped them with their SEO because of those three things were affecting their SEO. So that's what we did. And I was at the Fairmont with my mom for breakfast and they had these little jars on the table and I was like, that would make an amazing business card. I went to GoDaddy to see if the domain Jelly Marketing was available. It was. I got it for like eight bucks. And I took like nine jars home with me in my like pockets. I'm literally leaving the fair. I'd be like, chick, 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 chick. like they were jiggling in my pockets. Um, uh, and uh, I put them in a sink and then got some stickers and replaced the stickers on those jars with our branded jelly marketing stickers that we created. The really interesting thing that you kind of mentioned is this idea that you were getting involved in things maybe before they're popular. Seeing Facebook's potential, Google's potential, it seems so commonplace now to talk about these organizations, but in the early days, Google was competing with Bing and other and other search engines. And so I'm just interested, how do you think about the future? Do you get excited when you start hearing about new developments? Um, ChatGPT is a big one right now. Do you get excited when you start to hear these changes? Not really. Like all the stuff around like Bitcoins and NFTs and, uh, you know, AI stuff, like there's not like I like you call it web 3.0 but I I feel like there's so many small businesses and medium businesses in Canada which is the majority of our economics in our country uh, that have yet to figure out web 2.0 have yet to get a website working that has basic functionality like buying something or selling something or a website that works and so I think that stuff still excites me like seeing uh, an entrepreneur getting their website set up for the first time or launching their first set of Facebook ads and seeing like a massive return on their investment and massive conversions. Um, like I haven't, like all the other stuff hasn't been super practical. Like I, I will give this thing. Okay, I just learned this recently. If um, there's an old saying that's quite violent, but a, I like to use like if you feed two birds with one grain or, you know, feed two birds with one scone. Um, but... The idea being, if you shoot a video like what we're doing now, and if we put it into like otter.ai or a transcription tool, um, otter is a great one free. Um, and then I don't know if you do this yet, but you would turn this interview into a blog post or into an article. The problem is with otter is that like, you're going to get like the ums and the ah, uh, or like the blah, 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 blah right? Well, you'd be curious to see how that turns out. <laughs> but what you do is you go, you can use ChatGPT, and this is the first practical use I've seen for it and say, hey, ChatGPT turn this section of writing into an article written in the style of uh, Harvard Business Review. And then it'll take that garbly, you know, something garbly, we can clean it all up, make it grammatically correct, make it seem functional and actually clean that up. So I've seen a practical use there, but really I still think like the necessity for people to get just a basic website and an understanding of current social channels and not chasing all the new ones. Like I still say like, Get your Google My Business, get your e-newsletter going and your YouTube and like then think about all the others that are out there. And because, you know, there's so many options at the moment. OK, you mentioned mom bloggers, the OGs. And I have to ask, because, again, maybe a community that was underestimated at the time that you were interested in them. Oh, yeah. And obviously that's changed. You start to see people blow up on on TV that have this kind of worldview. So can you tell us about betting on people, not just yourself starting a business, but looking at other people and going like, you got something here, even when in the market, maybe it's not quite there yet. Yeah. And I'd say even now more than ever, like with, you know, we're losing cookies, right? The, the ability to really track people well, ads are getting noisier than ever online. Uh, you know, the, the 
our ability to reach people um, in a really, you know, quality way, working with creators, as a lot of influencers like to be called now, is so crucial more than ever. Um, you know, their ability to connect with an audience, their accents, their voices, their styles, their point of view, and really the trust that they build up with their um, followers and their connections is is incredible, right? It's it's so valuable. Uh, we actually got to work with a brand, Coast Capital Savings. It's a credit union. Um, we got to help launch their first influencer campaign. And again, it was so neat to know that. And again, if you do the math, and this is some math we often use, is to hire talent writers to, to write the scripts of these commercials and to film it and edit it, like it would almost be like 10 times the cost it would be to work with a series that we were six creators who kind of wrote, you know, and said, you know, what they thought about, you know, working with a credit union and kind of their perspective um, in these really beautifully powerful videos that they then were able to then share on their channels that reached an audience that Coast Capital typically wouldn't be able to reach. Or they could, but it would cost them a lot of money with Facebook and Instagram ads. The fear, I guess, from their perspective, and like you don't see that a lot with corporations, is now your brand is linked to a person. Yes, and like Jared from Subway. There you go. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, a, yeah. that's a pretty good example of how that could go wrong. Yes. Yeah. So we, again, we work with like a, a meat brand. And so they were like, we suggested some people. And then again, someone on their team was like, hey, we found this post from like three years ago where she was trying out veganism. And she did a bunch of like anti-meat posts. So we don't actually want to work with that person, right? Because they, she may go back to veganism again. So there's like, yeah, you're dealing with a, a human, right? A, a relationship with a person. So typically, yeah, we, you got to vet them really well. You got to find good fits. And I think too, though, you're always going to take a risk. Like I, um, Hudson's Bay uh, did a, a commercial a couple of years ago and they, and again, I, I love Schitt's Creek and they used the two actresses from Schitt's Creek, the mom and the daughter. And, and it was great. It was a great commercial. But my feedback, I wrote this open letter to them and I just said, hey, imagine if, like, I'm just guessing you paid them each, say, 100K to be in this commercial. What if you took that 100K, divide that by, you know, you know, $2,500, you know, and gave it to, you know, and, and using kind of like some of the statistics from our kind of like, how is Canada made up from like, you know, the nationalities and our, you know, kind of how we look and how we look as Canadians. And instead of just using two white women, who have like, you know, very similar accents. What if you worked with like hundreds of people across the country and that really represented Canada? You know, you split up that 200K budget divided by 2,500 each and gave it to all these incredible creators across the country. I think the risk is worth the reward. And I think the brand connection and and even if they're micro-influencers, like say they've got 2,000 followers or 3,000 followers, you can re-gram it, repost it, and you've got this beautiful content from what I think is a beautiful spectrum of people across our country. I think that that's really interesting to to be able to use your mind to understand things. Is there things that stand out to you in the industry now that interest you about how we communicate with people? Do you have hope that we're moving in the right direction? The only thing I can think of for me personally is it feels like we're just... We're, we're being sold our own morality, and that's something I don't love. Like having a green image, like a green leaf on something, and now I'm a good person and I care about the environment because it has a green leaf on it. I get worried about that we're incentivizing people to think that they're they're acting in the world's best interest by having those types of... What are your thoughts? Yeah, there's a, a old phrase called slacktivism, right? So it's, you know, and, and again, people criticized like Bono and Oprah when they launched the Red Campaign, right? So you could buy an iPhone or buy 
you know, laundry soap that was red, right? And it was actually going towards AIDS relief in the world. And, and you know, you read and study the stuff that Bono and Oprah would say, and their response back was more like, well, we wanted to give the opportunity for everyday people to be involved in something bigger than themselves. And so if you chose that iPhone over that iPhone, you chose the red iPhone, like, sure, maybe it's, you could call it flactivism. There's the criticism, that's it. but maybe you're also doing something, you're thinking about something besides yourself for a moment. Um, yeah, it's, or, or it's considered like commercializing charity, right? But I think there's some cool parts of it. Like I, I am actually a big fan of B Corp, um, which is the ability for businesses to register and go through a pretty intensive survey process to be like, hey, here's all the things that I'll comply to. It's really intensive. But when you get approved, you meet other B Corps who are like, man, you stand for something bigger than just making money. You stand for helping the planet and people. And, and sure, if people choose to work with us because we're a B Corp, great. But it, sometimes we forget to put the logo on. Actually, I forgot to renew it this last year, so we're not actually technically a B Corp right now. Um, so just so it's clear, um, I need to sort that out right now. Um, but when I see people who are B Corps, I'm actually pretty excited about it. Like, and like, you know, Ben and Jerry's, Patagonia, you know, Tentry. Um, Love Tentry. Yeah, like they're, they're cool companies that are trying to do something. And I think, but I think there's, it goes a lot deeper than that. Like there's um, like an amazing project out of the US right now that I'm really fascinated by called Creative Ladder. So Ryan Reynolds started it um, when he got involved in the ad agency, uh, ad industry a couple of years ago, started doing commercials. Also known of course for his acting and you know bought a soccer football club out of the UK. But he realized what he was in the industry that it was really predominantly white people who were working there. And so they did a study and found that the main reason they weren't seeing diverse voices in the advertising industry is that they didn't really know about it or it wasn't really posed to them as uh, an option while in high school. And so they've been working to change that and working to provide resources and mentors and um, tools to, to shift that. And so we're working on a similar thing in Canada where we don't see a lot of Indigenous voices in the advertising marketing industry. So we've been doing a series of videos about like what a day in the life looks like, but showing that it's not just a completely white industry because it broke my heart. We launched a, a marketing award show through our Marketing News Canada podcast. Um, and, and I was like, you know, as anyone would do, I, I'm going to say, hey, who else is doing award shows right now for marketing advertising in Canada? We studied like there was 16 of them at the time for all things PR, comms, marketing. And every single jury member was a white person. There was not, there was no, it didn't exist. The uh, non-white jury members was not even a thing. And I think for me, I think I, my heart was broken. Like for days I was just, I was really hurt because I was like, man, I thought I was part of this industry that's super like creative and inclusive and open. And then I remember sharing it with someone and, and they're like, dude, this industry is as racist as every other industry. Why would you think we'd be any different? And I was like, cause we're artists and creators. Like we care about that stuff. But he goes, no man, we're just as bad as everyone else. So I think, um, that kind of propelled me and, and my wife and I, we've set up like a bunch of scholarships to try to help propel more indigenous voices into the industry. And, and I get, I get frustrated in some ways, but again, I won't, maybe I shouldn't air this on here for, but I'm like, I, okay, I'll say it like this. I am looking forward to the day when I no longer get hired to help with indigenous perspectives for large corporations and brands, because instead they can go down the hallway and be like, Hey, Tommy, tell me what about Bannock or Hey, Tommy, tell me, we got it. We got, you know, Indigenous History Month coming up. What should we do? Instead of going to some outside organization, it'd be so rad if they like, they've got a peer at the water cooler or on Zoom or on Slack they can talk to. 
Yeah, I definitely think I just uh, spoke to Willie Sellers and we were talking about the growth because I think indigenous economies are really interesting because they haven't participated in in a very long time. And so now you're seeing a, a group of people, uh, Sharon Bond, who, who runs the Kakuli Cafe, talking about this idea of indigenous entrepreneurs being a community of people who know adversity, who know how to work hard, who are hungry, and who are willing to put in those long hours to see the difference. And we need that. We're, we're seeing a challenge with getting enough people into Canada who are able to do these jobs. And we have this whole population in so many different Indigenous communities that are ready to go, that just need to be directed to the school, directed to the resource to start to see progress made. Come on, Aaron. Preach it, Aaron. Come on. LinkedIn came out with a report, fastest growing jobs in Canada. Uh, 2023 growth marker is number one, fastest growing job. And and I would argue this, again, I'm open to be argued against it, but I would say one of uh, the best superpowers that Indigenous people have is storytelling. And so, and again, more than ever, good digital marketing needs great storytellers. And those in PR need to be great storytellers. Those in social media need to be great storytellers. YouTubers need to be great storytellers. And so mm -hmm. if we can provide the hardware, the skills training, and the support, um, man, I'm so excited to see what's going to come down the pipe in the next uh, you know, five to 10 years. Okay, so I have to ask, because this is a challenge I think so many entrepreneurs have. This, I have the idea, I have the product, I have the food, I have the service, but nobody's nobody's ordering. Nobody's Nobody knows. I'm getting yeah. no searches. How do you start that conversation? We walk in, sit down, and I'm like, I've got this product. You see it's a good product. You know it's a good product. I've got this good product, but nobody yeah. knows about me. What is that kind of journey in your mind? How do you break a problem like that down? Yeah, that's a really great question. And usually it's um, like if you, you, know, you got product, you know, which is business to consumer, there's like services often which are business to business, right? Selling to other businesses. So we um, essentially break it down in like to seven kind of modules is how we look at it. So we look at it like, okay, what can you be doing on social media? Like what are, you know, your, your audience, are they a Pinterest audience? Is it like a localized, should you be focusing on Google My Business? Should you be working on an e-newsletter and offering like coupon codes? Uh, if it's a restaurant, should you be offering like specials at lunch uh, and doing a sponsored, uh, you know, email to all the Chamber of Commerce members in your area? Um, how do you get some earned media? What does it look like? You know, if even looking at this podcast and this show, like what does it look like to get Post Media or the Globe Mail to pick up how incredible this show is that you're running, right? And and kind of like, the you know, and again, they may not just cover your show, but they'd be like kind of like the next generation of Indigenous, you know, kind of content creators, right? And, and who are they and what are they doing? And so it's looking at the PR side of things. It's looking at the SEO side of things. How do you, when someone Google searches like pizza, like best pizza in Chilliwack, how do we make sure that your place pops up in those searches? Um, we look at Google ads. Should you be running Google ads? Should you be running Bing ads? Um, we look at e-newsletter marketing, which is a really big one. Because if you think about e-newsletter is the only social media channel, the only form of media you can socialize with that you own and you don't have to fall prey to any algorithm uh, by the, you know, Facebook and you know, Twitter gods that be. So that is really interesting. Do you feel like things are getting better for people to get their messages out? Do you feel like we're in a good time to be a creator and to tr be trying to get word out? Or as you said, it's noisy out there. And so I'm just interested in your perspective on on where the industry is. Yeah, if you look at podcasts, I I, I can't remember the stat exactly, but it was like I think it was like 
almost 80% of podcasts only have one episode. So, you know, so if you've got more than one episode, man, you are killing it. And so what I think though is that I think we're in a time when like, it's more about curation than it is about creation. And so those that are high, high quality rise to the top. So if you are producing good content, quality content, um, and consistent content, you get up there. You know, one of my favorite YouTubers, uh, guy named Mr. Beast, uh, another one's Mark Rover. But if you look at Mr. Beast, like the way he shoots it and the way that it is not great. Like it's not professionally shot and professionally edited. Like it is handhelds and, you know, quick, awkward edits, really bad graphics. Like it's done in such a raw way. But just the stuff he does is so brilliant, whether it's, you know, getting a thousand people healed from blindness, right? Whether it's giving a, a house away to a homeless person. It's like these kind of like shock and awe things. Like, again, I we have this actually this mural or kind of term up in our office, which is thumb stopping content. So what can you do that would wow. cause people to stop their thumb? Like, and what is that? And that's why you look at Mr. Beast and others where like the pause screen on YouTube is so crucial. Like that is like a huge, there's a science to it. There's an art to it of what is in that um, screen that is on the YouTube uh, kind of board up there. Really interesting. So do you think that we're making it more accessible with all of this technology? Do you feel like there's any shame that people feel in having to market their business? I have a suspicion that people are, has, they want the product to speak for itself. And I see businesses um, in in community that are like, I just want it to be liked by people. And so if they don't, like, I don't want to force it on them. And that seems to be the fear that people have around taking that first step to start to market their business is I've got this good idea. And if people want it, they can come get it. Yeah. I don't, I don't find that as much like I call it like the, you know, feel the dreams uh, syndrome where it's like, if you build it, they will come like this old movie for, I don't know, nineties or whatever. Um, I feel it's more people get, uh, either paralysis by analysis or they feel overwhelmed with all the channels and the options. So it's like they've created this amazing, let's call it this mug right here, right? Like they got this mug and they're about to take it to market and they're so excited because they're passionate about the mug. They love their mug. They built it. They made it. You know, it's passed down generations of how to make this amazing mug. But then when they go to market it and to promote it, there's like right now like 200 options. Do you start a podcast? Do you go on Pinterest? Do you go on Twitter? Do you want like way too many options? And then when they realize, okay, the best option is here, they're overwhelmed with like, well, how do I do it well? How do I run a really good Facebook ad? And so back in the day, it was really way simpler. You maybe put a newspaper ad out. You maybe put something in the yellow pages. Like the options were like a handful of options for a business to start and to get the word out. But now it's it's overwhelming. And the ones that are there that are really the most powerful, like maybe uh, you know a Reddit thread or running some Reddit ads, that would be maybe best for that mug company. Um, there's a few steps there to learn how to do it. And so if we can empower people with those skills to both assess you know, the, you know, all the options and to choose what's best for them and then give them the tools on how to do marketing on maybe those three channels the best. That's what I'm seeing work really, really well. And they're amazing at it. Once they kind of filtered out the nose and said, don't go over to all those places and just do these three and do it really well. They do an amazing job because they are the creator of said mug and they are the best person to market the said mug. 
I love that. And I think that that's a huge argument as to why it's valuable to have a third person in the room, a person that's not yourself, a person who's able to give feedback to you. Because sometimes we get so lost in the beauty of this mug. I made it. Uh, it took me hours to figure out how to do all the hours of build up. And then we get protective over it. And we need somebody who's able to come in and say, this is how we get we get it out to the world. This is how we grow this. This is how we get the message out. Could you also tell us about Marketing News Canada? Because I think it's really valuable for people to start to develop skills around how to communicate their messages. And I'm just interested in how that got started for you. Yeah, that was more of like a happy accident. <laughs> so uh, we ran a conference in Squamish called the Canadian Internet Marketing Conference uh, with another agency, Marwick. And a uh, guy wanted a ticket. I couldn't really give away tickets because I co-ran the event with someone else. And so I was like, why don't you apply to be a press guy? be awesome and maybe do a blog or two about it. He goes, totally, we'll do that. And so he came and at the end of the conference, he's like, Darian, and he showed me this little handheld recorder thing. I goes, I've done something for you. And this was like eight years ago when like podcasts were only on SoundCloud and Apple was the only real options you had to listen to podcasts. So the next week he launched uh, what was called Marketing Jam is what we called it originally, our first episode. And it was a series of interviews of all the people backstage. Like it was like the head storyteller from Pixar to someone from Google to someone from Twitter. And we had all these speakers, but he took these sound bites and made this thing called a podcast. And he's like, hey, I'll keep doing it. So we paid him a monthly fee every month and he kept these podcasts going. Um, and then we hired someone who had a really strong uh, production background and said, hey man, we could do this in house, it'd be really fun. Um, this guy actually at the same time was getting a new job and he's like, so let's do it. So we kept interviewing people in house. And then we saw that there was, um, Heritage Canada was supporting Canadian made journalistic efforts. But it was only if it was in written word. They didn't believe in podcasts yet. I don't think they do yet, but maybe one day. Hey, Heritage Canada, if you're listening, we would love that. Um, we started transcribing our uh, episodes into articles. And so, and at that time, we changed it from Marketing Jam to Marketing News Canada and uh, got uh, funded by Heritage Canada one year, which was kind of cool. And then we kept episodes going. And then Amazon Prime, a friend of mine, was like, hey, man, it'd be funny if you applied to try to get your show up there. So I sent it in with another guy and we got approved. So Amazon Prime picked up 10 of our episodes, the video format. So we're the first Canadian podcast to get turned into a, a TV series. Um, it wasn't a very, you know, it was pretty, it was, it was like between two ferns, but like <laughs> not as funny. And so it's like, no, it was like an awkward show. And so, but it was fine. We put up one season they asked for a second season. We never did do it because it was a lot, it's a ton of work to do transcription. Um, what's it called? Closed captioning. So we never got around it because you have to do a ton of work. To quit. And it was always a side project for us and always still is. Um, but then we started doing an e-newsletter because people started liking our content. We've got a bunch of people who syndicate their content onto our site now. Um, so we've got, yeah, just almost, yeah, thousands of almost close to, I want to say 9,000 subscribers to the email list. Um, podcasts go out probably once or twice a week. We were doing way too many, especially during COVID. But during COVID, the best gift was like a guy like Seth Godin, who I would, you know, wanted to have speak at events or interview. Also was like, hey, I got some time in my hands. And I was like, I don't know if he felt sorry for me or he's just like, I'm bored. So I got to interview him, who was brilliant. Um, guy Kawasaki, who was the first kind of marketer for Apple, got to interview him. Um, and it was a huge treat. Um, head of social media for Lego. And I actually, the only reason I keep the show going, and I don't mind admitting this, one was I was trying to land an interview with Squarespace and it took me three and a half years to get it. I finally got it. But then I was like, but I see this as like personal 
and professional development when I get interviewed. So I call it like these micro mentor moments. I got to interview like the co-founder of Netflix and got to really like get into the heart of like what happened and what was it like going to that blockbuster meeting where they said, no, we don't want to buy you. Um, like it's been so cool. Those interviews, like I, I walk away just blown away. I couldn't agree more. And I think that there is a value, even if people just don't even air or share the podcast to work through your own thoughts. Like it is a form of thinking to be able to sit down and go through and think, what are my thoughts on this? Is this yeah. something that I know is true or is this something that I've been, I'm parroting because my parents told me it? Yeah. Is this something that I understand deeply or am I just repeating things I've heard uh, because it's popular? It gives you that, that opportunity to go through and figure out how do I communicate? How do I think? And that's been one of the best growing moments for myself is figuring out, do I actually believe this? Do I actually think this? Do I understand this issue? Or am I just saying things to be bold or provocative? Mm-hmm. Do I really get it? And then sitting down with really interesting people and hearing them explain their understanding when they're an expert in something. And I get to go, wow, okay, how do bees work? Because I interviewed yeah. our provincial apiculturist. How do oh, they work? How do you cool. see them? Why are you interested in this? And yeah. to take that journey and learn. Did you ask and- him if he saw the bee movie with Jerry Seinfeld? I didn't ask him that. What? I didn't ask him. But he was as... It doesn't even matter if he saw it because he basically <laughs> explained the plot of the movie yeah. as what we're still doing today. So oh, we're, in this, we're in the same uh, problem, I think, that we were in since that movie. Um, That's I And I, I did a fun experiment. And it's not working great. I, we, did, we took 100 of our interviews, turned them into uh, chapters of a book, and we published a book. Uh, really? Last month. So it's been... Uh, and uh, yeah, definitely not a bestseller in any regard, but it's been cool. The like people that like paper, so we've sold like... I don't know, 10 uh, copies. I don't know how many copies. We've sold them so far, um, but we were able to. So we and we we just hit our 300th episode, so we're going to do two more of these books where we'll have like the first 100 reviews, then the next 100, and then the next 100. And people that like books or it get, I was inspired by a book called Tribe of Mentors um, uh, where he took, again, a, a podcaster took 100 of his interviews and found like the best nuggets from it. And so you could flip through it and circle things. And it's pretty cool. I think it's really fascinating to see that trend, that transversion, that trans, that changeover yeah. from mediums when you see a podcast get written out into a Substack article yeah. or something like that yeah. and see people be able to communicate because people like to read, people like to listen. There's yeah. different, there's different approaches for people and to make learning more accessible is really where I get excited about podcasts. And then you can learn from people like yourself and understand an issue in a different way than maybe you did before. Yeah, yeah no, for sure. Can I just ask, what advice do you have for people? You've taken risks on yourself over your career. You continue to invest in in new ideas to stay fresh and stay current with people. I'm just interested, what can people take away from this? I, I feel like there's a lot to learn from individuals like yourself. And I'm just curious as to what what thoughts you have for others who are starting to take those initial steps to start their own business, to start to take steps for themselves. I think it's almost like there's an old saying like you throw spaghetti against the wall and see if it sticks. So like we we started a, a training school out of our agency called Jelly Academy and we just tried it, right? It was actually funny enough, it was one of our clients was like, can you train me? So we trained her and then we tried a few more. So we threw a bit more spaghetti out and then we made an open class so people could try it and, and it worked. So it's almost like, you know, crawl, walk, run is the old saying, but trying it and trying it and then I think we realized, you know, there was a, a there's a massive need in this hole in the training industry that we're able to fill, and and we just happen to be at the right time in the right place. And I think that's what so much of entrepreneurship is: is like 
trialing, trialing things. And then sometimes you just happen to be the right place at the right time uh, when it works. The only thing that makes you somewhat unique, and I would say the best entrepreneur is unique, is that you have a love of the game. You have a love for what you do. And I'm just yeah. wondering if you could just speak to that because there is something to like trying new things, but yeah. you have to have an initial love of it. You have to do it. Like a lot of the best podcasters started, no one was listening and they were speaking yeah. to a microphone because they <laughs> loved it. So can you talk about that love of the game? I don't know. I don't know. I like the podcast is where I, I just found, I find people fascinating. I was like, I got to interview these people. It feels honestly, I, this whole last 46 minutes have been super awkward for me. Cause I'm like, I'm used to beating your shoes. And I'm like, feel like this is a very unfair. Um, uh, but, and then the other side of like the school stuff we're doing, like, I just love it. And the, to try things and to, you know, there's an old, uh, incredibly wise woman, um, who used to say to her students when they got to the bus, we'd always say to them, you know, get messy, make mistakes and have fun. Her name is Miss Frizzle. She has this magic school bus. It's incredible. Check it out. She's a very, very wise woman. But, you know, it, it's so great to be able to live in a time where you can get messy, make some mistakes and really have fun with it. And and if you're having fun, it doesn't really feel like too much work. But um, again, it's also like... It, being excited enough about it that you're willing to do so much of the work that I've done and so many, you know, my partner does is like stuff that no one will ever see, right? It's the late night emails. You're doing a night shift until, you know, putting another four hours in at night to try to catch up on things. You're meeting with people and it not working out and you're trying things and throwing spaghetti and it just falls right off the wall and it never sticks. But I think that the core of it is though, um, finding it, there's an amazing book called You Are Special about these amazing WeMic people. And uh, they, they, they run around giving, you know, gray dot stickers and gold star stickers to, to other wooden people. And if you get a star sticker, it's because you're awesome, right? And if you get a, a gray dot sticker, it's because you're not that great. And there's this one character, Punchinello, who kept getting these gray dot circle stickers and he was really sad. And, and he was just, it was the worst. And he tried to do these amazing feats and then he would fail even more and then he'd get even more stickers uh, of the gray type. And he would see these amazing wooden people with these beautiful stars everywhere. He's like, I want to be like them. They look amazing. Um, but then one day he saw uh, this wooden person, Lucille, walks through town and had no stickers at all. And was like, what? How is that possible? And he chased after her, goes, how do you do? How is that possible? And, and she goes, well, actually, I just go up and see the woodcarver each day. That's it. And then she walked away. And, and Punchinello goes home, goes to bed, thinks about it. He's sitting up, can't sleep. He's like, should I go? Should I do this? And he was just covered in these great stickers. He's like, I'm just going to go. So he went the next day and opened up this massive door and walked in. And all of a sudden he heard, Punchinello, it's so good to see you. And these big hands came down and lifted Punchinello up and put him on his workbench. He goes, oh, it's so good to see you. And Punchinello's like, how do you know me? He goes, well, I made you. Of course I know you. And then he, and he says, oh, man, I'm so embarrassed. He goes, oh, man, you got a few bad marks on you. And, and he goes, yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm just a big mistake. And he goes, you know what, Punchinello? I made you, and I never make mistakes. And, and he says, you know what? Come and see me every day, anytime. Come on up. And he lifts Punchinello off, puts him down. Punchinello kind of has a little smile on his face. And as he's walking, he looks back. One of his gray stickers falls off his body. I, I read this story to my children and, and it's an incredible, I think, story for entrepreneurs where, you know, we can get praise and we can get put in the newspaper or get put in thing. And we can have a great quarter uh, and, and that's awesome. And But we can't, that can't be our oxygen. And we can get a lot of negative 
uh, feedback and bad reviews and have a really grumpy customer. And that also can't feed us and fuel us. But if you can find that voice, whether it's meeting with the, if you believe in your creator uh, and you can go see your creator and let your creator whisper over you that I made you and you are amazing and you are not a mistake and, and I love you, great. If you've got another method to find that anchor in your life that could just get your feet somewhere where it doesn't matter what anyone says about you, whether it's a partner that can whisper to you at night, like you are amazing. You are incredible. You're you're amazing at just who you are as a person. Doesn't matter what your business, whether it's ups or downs, like that's that voice to find. And, and I think that's been, I don't think that the thing that's gotten me through all of the ups and downs. And there's so many ups and downs in entrepreneurship that, yeah, the, that children's book has kind of been one of my saving graces. What an incredibly profound and beautiful story. Darian, thank you so much for being willing to do this. Would you mind telling people how they can connect with you, how they can stay up to date with you? I send like a, a fax, uh, carrier pigeon, uh, send me a... <laughs> Send me a page. Like I wish, I wish, I wish I had a fax number because that'd be amazing to leave a fax number at the end of this and see if I get any faxes. Um, but LinkedIn is mostly where I uh, reside. Um, but I'm on all the uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, email, even I um, website Jelly Marketing or Jelly Academy, or check out Marketing News Canada wherever you find your podcast. Brilliant. Thank you so much again for being willing to do this. Um, I really appreciate all of your knowledge. That story was absolutely beautiful. Um, and I'm so excited to share that with people. Uh, huge thank you as well to Tim uh, for putting this together. Uh, if we could switch to his camera. Tim's in the house. Yes. DJ, DJ Tim. <laughs> Another one. All right. Awesome. How did that turn out, Tim? That was great. Well done. Oh, Aaron, pleasure to meet you. Great to meet you. If you ever want to come out, say hi and grab a coffee, tea, whatever. I'm happy to host you out here in the in the four lane. I and I've jars that we actually have jars of jelly. I could give you an actual jar. I would be honored. That sounds fantastic. <laughs>